0: Like, it's two people using each other to, you know, get their needs met, you know, one is financial and one is sexual. Um, so I'm not gonna deny that, but, but like, I think people don't understand like the degree of, of loneliness that men have. And like, it's just like a drive to be accepted, like a drive to be loved in this particular way. I'm Hannah Newinch Wonder, a production lead at a soybean seed facility in central Illinois you're listening to the Vance Crow
1: Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. This podcast is not safe for work. This is going to be an edge case and I don't think that this podcast is necessarily for everyone. I had a chance to interview a woman that puts out all sorts of philosophical, uh, sociological ideas but she is also a commercial sex worker. She has her own cam website on OnlyFans and she's also done in-person sex work. She's been a prostitute. This conversation came about because I'm trying to discover new ideas, new ways of thinking, and I really felt like this was a conversation worth having. When I brought it up with my family and my friends, there were some people that said, this is a terrible idea, you are knocking on the door of a person that is doing living their life completely differently, and you don't want anything to do with that. And I had a lot of other people say, hey, I've got this question. Would you ask her about this? Would you ask her about this? And so I went ahead and did the interview, and it was really deeply interesting. You're about to meet a woman that is off the charts on the openness scale, her openness to new ideas, to new experiences, are unlike anybody that I've ever met before. She is high in intellect, very intelligent and experienced about all sorts of things. So while the conversation does have a lot to do with being in the world of pornography or with prostitution, we're never graphic. We're not talking about the details of sex work or anything like that. We're really talking about what goes on in the mind of a person that's made the decision to go down this path. So I hope you check this out with an open mind and you recognize that this is one of the rare opportunities to hear a person that has experienced the world from a totally different vantage point. I wanna thank her so much for doing this because, well, I was really blunt and she seemed to be so open with the questions that I just kept going. And you will find that I ask questions here that are maybe even deeper and more probing than almost any other uh, interview I've ever done. So I hope that you find this interesting. If you're the type of person that uh, really enjoys these types of conversations, things that are on the edge, things that push the way that you're thinking, and you wanna be surrounded by other people that are challenging you, that are worth pushing your ideas around with, throwing out ideas and concepts and hearing what other people think, you may wanna join the Articulate Ventures Network. There we have a few, a little bit more than 50 people all coming together. They listen to the podcast, they participate in the book club, and they interact with one another, sometimes in the business club meetings, sometimes with uh, just talking and throwing out ideas and hearing what other people think. If you're looking for a community and you want one that's going to push you, then check out the Articulate Ventures Network, and you can do that by going to network.articulate.ventures. And now on to my interview with Ella. Ayla, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, thank you for having me on.
1: So you are an interesting character and you have a job or a a profession for the last few years that many people that if they only use Google and Facebook and they stay, you know, in the places where the guardrails are, they never see your work. But would you mind explaining what it is you do as a profession and kind of how you got into this?
0: Yeah, I do basically um, like independent pornography. Uh, So I have an OnlyFans, which is basically like Patreon, uh, except for sexy stuff. And I post like nudes or, you know, sexy videos or whatever. People pay a monthly fee and sometimes a little bit more to access that. So when
1: I think about somebody that uh, starts in that world, I think of it as one that once you cross the threshold into, into doing pornography you can't ever go back you don't ever go back to not having done it what was the experience like when you decided to move down this path was it a quick one or something that happened unexpectedly
0: well it was it was sort of a desperation one um so i did not have a good life prospects at the time that i made the decision to try sex work um, there was not a lot available to me. And at that point I was sleeping on a friend's couch and like really trying to make my own business. Um, but I lived in Idaho. So I was trying to like do photography or something because that's the one thing I knew how to do. And uh, a friend of a f- suggested that I try uh, doing sex work, uh, uh, camming at the time. So like basically live streaming, um, being sexy. And so eventually I gave it a shot and I made a good amount of money, $60. For a couple hours of work, which was the most fun I had ever seen in my life for that little effort. Um, So I decided to just keep trying it. And that was eight years ago.
1: And as you're going through this, are you like, for me, that's something of a nightmare, right? Like where I could be sleeping at night and have a dream where I'm naked in front of people. And that is a completely disarming, something I I clearly am, am fighting. I want to get away from. I feel exposed. Did you have these same fears?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was really scary because um, I was raised, you know, very conservatively. Like when we did not show off our bodies. You know, we weren't allowed to watch The Little Mermaid because she showed her stomach. Like this is the kind of level. So the the first time I tried this, it was absolutely terrifying. I was. It was very like stressful, and I was very nervous. Um, But I got used to it pretty fast. Like eventually you just realize, oh, like nothing bad happens if I'm naked and it's actually fine.
1: And so, um, so, so talk about like the progress then, is this something you jump in with both feet? You like move towards some direction? Are you, do you, are you, do you have other friends that are doing this? Are you being guided?
0: Uh, yeah. So there's different kinds of sex work and I've tried a couple different ones and it's the answer is a little bit different for each one. Um, generally speaking, uh, a lot of girls have done it before, and you can go talk to them. I do have a lot of friends who do sex work in various forms as well. Um, you have to do a lot of figuring it out on your own. I, I was very uh, like tried my own thing a little bit more than most people, I think, which is why I did so well. Uh, but yeah, there's like some some things that are cut and dry that you just you do because everybody doesn't you know it works, and there's like other areas where you can experiment.
1: The reason that it's so you're such an interesting character is that I actually did not come to you through camming. I really had very little idea about how this world all worked, but you're a prolific writer. So for whatever reason, you've decided while you're not camming to sit down and pen ideas that are so um, naked in and of themselves. Right. Like they reveal deep parts of what you believe that are heretical in most circles, but then also. Don't always put you in a light that I think, you know, holds you up with a shining star around you. Like, where in the world did the writing and putting yourself up on such an intimate level build into the world you're in?
0: Yeah, I started writing my blog on 2017. Um, so it was sort of more recent. But probably through doing psychedelics, I did a lot of that. And, and there's some way where I, I grew to really deeply accept myself um, in, in every possible way. Uh, at, at some point I experienced that. And so I feel like if I'm able to take like the really like, horrific parts of myself or the things that are unflattering and then present them without shame and as though I accept them, which is true, I do, then like maybe that can be a, a, a template for other people to realize that this is possible for them. Like I feel like in doing this, it is a demonstration of love for others to be like, look, if I can accept this bad part of me, like you can share with me the bad parts of yourself, and I'll be okay with it.
1: When I was watching your video, so there's a video, a documentary out about uh, you doing acid, and Mm -hmm. uh, I had seen other people from afar do acid, but it was always, you know, very distant (laughs) from (laughs) me.
0: Like, on, in the, like, like in the distance, like in a field. Well, like
1: people that I knew at a party were doing it and they were just okay. kind of like over in the corner and you just kind of left them alone. And yeah, so when I was watching that video, like, you know, I've traveled all over the world. I've, I've had all kinds of experiences, but I felt like that was one of the most intimate things that anybody could ever record because you are mm-hmm. having these experiences that are so raw that your emotions are just pouring out of you was this i mean because you were on acid was it no you know no big deal to be filmed or was it something that you sat around and thought about
0: for what i'm I'm touched that i feel like you saw that like i think a lot of people watch that and and don't feel how raw it was because it was very raw so i'm i'm grateful that
1: Oh, I was watching it on a VR headset and I actually stopped.
0: (laughs) A VR headset.
1: Yeah, it was, it was way too intense. It was actually like, so when you watch something on VR, you can expand the screen so that it takes up basically your whole Mm. vision. And, uh, I, I was just sitting there being like, I don't think this is an experience. Like I was supposed, it felt like something I wasn't supposed to see because you don't, maybe you only see that with your partner or like a close family member that pouring of emotion
0: yeah i think that's the idea like for whatever reason i've ended up in a spot where i feel capable of trying to be that intimate with as many people as i can and if i can then i, I want to like I, I want to invite people in to that degree um it, I had done acid a, a lot before I tripped to that point, maybe like 60, 70 times. And so eventually I was like, what am I going to do with LC now? I'm like, I want to share it with the world. And so I got together with the film crew and shot that. It was a really great experience.
1: Can you walk a person through the experience um, that ha- that no, they have never done acid? They have no idea what this is. Like what goes on from the moment you take it through the through the experience that you went through
0: yeah so it's difficult to explain and it's a little bit different for everybody Um, have you tried it no okay Uh, i would
1: i would like it's something that i'm so i'm pretty open person very very curious and for me taking acid is is like messing with the source code of the thing that makes me me and so i am very intimidated to to try it
0: that makes sense i think that's a very appropriate response. It's very intimidating, and it, it's good to treat it with that level of um, fear and respect. Uh, yeah, it's not—it's not a joke. I mean, it kind of is a joke, but it's like also quite serious. Um, yeah, and I think that's what I didn't understand when I first took LSD. I knew about drugs. Um, I this was—I was like twenty-one or something, and I didn't—I thought it was going to be like alcohol. You know, when you drink alcohol, it feels like um, like. I sort of behave differently. And, but it also kind of feels like I can watch myself behave differently. Like there's like a little part of myself that's still in the back of my head. That's like, Oh, right. Ayla, you're kind of, you know, you're being a little silly right now. You might regret this tomorrow, but it's, it's still like, it's still like me in there. And that's what I thought LSD was going to be. I thought it was going to kind of be like alcohol, but just like a different thing. Like instead of feeling silly, I feel, I don't know, very smart or I don't know. But, but when I took it, It was really terrifying for me to find that the thing that it was attacking was the me that was watching it was like there was no escape from it or like from being modified by it um and so the very first time i did lsd it was a really bad time because i was afraid of that and i was trying very desperately to be a hold of myself um didn't work out lsd you can't fight it um but it's it's really nice, you know. You get the colors moving. Um, you see yourself differently. I think this is why it's so useful for therapy, because you, it changes the perspective of where you are when you're relating to yourself. So it can help you like realize patterns that you've had that you couldn't see because you were in them. Um, and this is why people have like it's, like shifts in their behavior afterwards. So it's like oh.
1: Yeah. And you came from a religiously devout family. And from what I've read about people taking things like LSD, it can actually shift you a full or, or two standard deviations towards being more open. Yeah. Were you a pretty open person before you started doing 70 hits of acid?
0: Yeah, <laughs> I started out pretty open and uh, just <laughs> went more down that road. I was always pretty open, even as a religious person. I know the stereotype is that religious people are closed, but uh, that wasn't true for me.
1: So, uh, you came from a background, and in, in the in the writing, I've read a lot of your blogs. I was um, oh, both like you. fascinated and in some ways horrified. Like in in some ways, thinking like. There is so much intensity here. I don't know if I'm knocking on Dante's Inferno doors and saying like is this welcoming in an experience that uh is better locked away. But as I as I read the things that you're doing, you talk a lot about your religious upbringing and the fact that you were homeschooled. So tell me about your childhood and why that plays such a big role in what you write about today.
0: Yeah. Um, I was homeschooled in a fundamentalist, evangelical, Calvinist, reformed family. Um, so it was a lot of like isolation from the outside world. Like We didn't watch normal media. All of the other people, I do not want to restart computer, thank you. Um, all of the other people I knew were, were religious and homeschooled in the same way I was. So there was a really disconnect from the outside world uh, that was pretty, like, very severe and pervasive. Didn't listen to secular music. And my dad is a professional evangelical minister. So he goes around debating, he has like a radio show and writes books and <laughs> that's a website. Um, so that was like my whole life and family was being really immersed in the Bible and God. And I memorized, uh, you know, over 800 verses over my, the course of my childhood. Um, I had a lot of experience like debating atheists even, even when I was young. It was, it was like super ingrained, um, yeah.
1: Yeah. And you had a very interesting take on some of this stuff, as I've heard you talk about in other interviews where you said, look, my religion was not one where we were cloistered off and we said, don't listen to other people. In fact, Mm -hmm. it was we're open to questioning. We want this type of of interaction. And you spoke of it as being almost like a reinforcing thing because you were so open that ultimately made you more closed off.
0: Yeah, so we were we were very culturally close in the sense of like not, not exposure to secular things. However, we were very open to contradicting ideas. So a lot of people have a stereotype that Christianity, like you're like, hey, what about this thing in the Bible? That seems weird. And then the Christians go, don't, don't ask questions. You know, you're just supposed to believe. That was not the case with us. We were encouraged to ask questions. Like I mentioned, my dad is a professional debater. And so he basically had the attitude that like anything you can question, please question it because we have the truth. And we, it will stand up to any sort of rigorous investigation. Um, so it was super investigative and a lot of debates happened. And I, I enjoyed that part a lot.
1: A, a couple of months ago, there was an article circulating around in Ag Twitter with a Harvard law professor that basically was saying, the core of homeschooling is rotten. They're teaching people bad things. And the only way the state can protect us from the racist things they say, the sexist things, like basically all of the woke ideology that you hear is to eliminate homeschooling. And so I you know, reached out to this professor, I, I must've asked her four or five times to come on the podcast. It's the only time I've ever asked somebody multiple times. And uh, she refused it and I was really pissed off at her. Um, because I thought that it was completely unfair what she was saying. And then I, I read your kind of experience and I think, well, I don't actually want kids trapped in that sort of homeschooling situation. So as you look at your background and you look at the direction things go in the public school world and kind of the, the experience that you had from homeschool, how does it strike you today of, uh, of, uh, of the state saying you shouldn't be allowed to do it anymore?
0: Yeah. So my homeschooling had a lot of downsides. Like I was taught that the earth was 6,000 years old and evolution was a lie. And like the church, the United States was founded on strictly Christian principles and you know, a lot of, I was, it took me a long time to adjust after I left homeschooling. Like I was, had problems with, you know, the way I was conditioned, but even with that, I think it was still significantly better than public school. Like, sure. Like, homeschooling oh, I was sucks. not <laughs> expecting that. Wow. Okay. Homeschooling sucks, but you know what sucks worse? It's not homeschooling. Uh, so yeah, like maybe those critiques are legitimate, but like I find them unfair to be leveled at homeschooling independently. Um, so like when I was a teenager, I was homeschooled for all of it except for three months where I went to public school, um, just because they were trying it out, and it was it was awful. Like at some parts of it were better, but like the the schooling itself, so it took up significantly more time to learn way less. Our our time was like regimented by the system, by the teachers, by like the clock. Um, And so just my whole day kind of went away. And whereas as a homeschooler, I would just teach myself. I would get the curriculum. My mom would like, you have to like do this lesson in this book. And I would do it at my own pace, which was way faster than public schools. I don't have to go there, like go between classes, like wait for the teacher to wait for everybody to be quiet. Like the teacher like reads through the books, like it took so long. And then, but the most important part is I had free time at home. And that, I think that was the best possible thing for my creativity and my independence and like ability to, to develop myself, just to be able to pursue what I wanted. And that was absolutely crushed with public school. Um, so yeah, I would go through a worse experience homeschooling really before I think I would go to public school.
1: I, uh, I was not anticipating that answer at all. <laughs> Do you have a good relationship with your parents now?
0: It's okay. Um, I don't really talk to my dad cause he's an asshole, but my mom, I interact with her. Actually, I'm in Idaho right now. This is why I have this background. Um, I'm traveling. So I just saw my mom last night. Did we get along? Okay. <sighs>
1: So right now I'm actually in the process of reading the book. I'm just about done with it. Lawrence of Arabia, the uh, Seven Pillars of Wisdom by T.E. Lawrence. And I am struck that I actually think your writing is really similar to his writing. Really? And yeah. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but it's, it's that it's direct. It's very poetic. But it's not a Dorn. It's not, it's not, uh, it's, you don't read it thinking, I'm just waiting for him to get done blowing smoke around here to make it fancy. And so when I read your stuff, I, I have to wonder, like, how long or what process did it take for you to develop the style that you have?
0: It's <laughs> a really, like, specific and good questions. Um, I, so part of the free time I mentioned from, being when I was a teenager, uh, I wrote uh, like a million words of fantasy and I read books all the time. I I was just constantly reading books every waking moment and writing. I wrote thousands of words every day. And so I think that really got me used to writing, um, which is again, it's something I would never have been able to develop or focus on if I had gone to public school. So yeah, I did that. I think that's where it comes from. And I was a voracious reader. And I'm influenced a lot by rationalist writing. I don't know if you've fo- followed any of the blogs, like Less Wrong or Slate Star Codex or something like that. Um, but they they have like a style of speaking that's influenced me quite a lot, which is very like unadorned. I don't like the pretentiousness of like academic writing that is uh, like very vocabulary heavy and I, some I don't know if I'm being uncharitable, but it seems like they're like almost deliberately intending to obscure the concepts they're trying to present. It's like very inaccessible to laymen, and I feel like if you want to write well, you have to be like like a child in some way. Like you have to be like a like a child explaining like very basically a thing um, like in a humble way to other people. And so that's sort of what I've been conditioned around which i i I like that
1: a lot yeah i totally agree with that i was working with a physicist yesterday who um is just doing some work in statistics and i was reading a report that he wanted to give to regular people and and uh, basically the conclusion we came down to is you can either be understood or you can be right you can be precise (laughs) but you can't be both
0: (laughs) well i that's not true. Like even if the precision is in clarifying that likely you are not going to understand this well.
1: Okay. Fair enough.
0: But okay, I, I get your point though. I don't mean to
1: You know, I, well another book that you that also strikes me uh as one that I think is relevant to you is uh The Naked Sun by Isaac Asimov. Are you are you familiar with
0: this? I one? like Asimov, but I've never read that one.
1: So the reason the Naked Sun is very interesting is um they're living in a far-off future. And there are space creatures that live on this planet. It's essentially humans evolved many thousands of years, but they've come to the conclusion that they never want to see each other. Their holograms are so good that it is like they are in person. And one of the things that comes as a result of that is women and men have no sense of I need to keep my clothes on or I need to not be sexual because there's no threat that if you turned a man on and he was in your presence, then the presence mm. is only a hologram. So they are always distant from you.
0: That's and that's, fascinating.
1: that strikes me as something that you might be able to relate well to, right? That you have this deeply intimate relationship with people or they have it with you only it's from afar, n- no touch.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm a little skeptical that it would permeate culture. I feel like culture takes like many generations to sort of update. And at least our culture hasn't really updated. Like like people are still afraid to take their clothes off on camera, even when like you could do it. Like, And there's no... Anybody could do it and there's no threat, but we still are conditioned really not to, like we still perceive it as a threat. And in some ways it kind of is because like if the information gets back to your own community, like the people who are in contact with you, then it's still a little bit scary for some people. Um, But I guess if in this world there is no any contact ever, then, then it makes sense.
1: So were you worried about that that the, that the imagery and the stories would get back to your community and that would somehow uh, harm you in the esteem of your people?
0: No. Um, what, uh, one benefit I had is that when I left you know my faith and my community, I left it. So I was all I left my faith a year or two before I started sex work. So I already had been like recently cut off from everybody that I, New, growing up, um so it wasn't hard. It's like, what do I have to lose, really?
1: Wow, that is very interesting. So you had been shunned in a way; they had they had pushed you out. You weren't going to be going to dinners and things like so that. Not
0: not quite shunned. Um, it, it's it's a little bit like iffy, like a little bit fuzzy around the edges. So uh, there's, I definitely know that some of the families like don't want exposure to um, inappropriateness. And I know that there there would have been some sort of like nervousness if people had known that I was doing sex work. Like, are you going to corrupt our children? I heard that a lot from you know other people. It's like uh, you don't don't come onto this forum. You must be trying to seduce people. Like I was trying to talk on a Christian forum at one point, and they're like, you can't tell people that you're a sex worker because the you that's predatory. <laughs> uh, so I know that that sort of attitude. is it's basically like we sort of mutually parted. I just knew that I was not the kind of thing that they would like. So I just stopped trying.
1: So when you think about the, the act of being naked and you're so comfortable with it and you know, you basically say, you know, you could take your clothes off too. Tell me about that. Like what have you learned by being naked in front of other people in a way that, you know, most people will never get anywhere close to if they can help it.
0: Yeah, I think people underestimate how contextual things are and how much they can change their behavior if the context changes. Um, I used to host naked parties quite a bit a couple of years ago, you know, in the before times. And I would often invite someone and they would say, taking my clothes off at a party, like around people, like, is it a sex thing? And I was like, no, it's not a sex thing. It's just a naked party. And then they'd be like, what if I get a boner? Like, what if I see like all these naked women and it's like very arousing, But right? This is the context because in our current culture, the only times you get naked around like people that you're not like of the opposite gender is like for sexual purposes. Um, but repeatedly, every single time, like the people would go to the party and then at the end, I'd be like, how is it? Like, how, how are all these fears that you had? Um, and they would report that this is actually nothing like they thought because this is such a desexualized context that it, like everything sort of changes um, they, they, nobody really struggled with having an erection because it was like very clear that that is not what this is about. Like these people are not sexually signaling. And I know that I am sexually signaling when I'm online, but I think the context is super important. Like I still feel uncomfortable taking off my clothes in some contexts, but they're like when you are put into sort of the frame where you're given permission to do this thing, it becomes actually quite easy. And sometimes even like fun to, to do it.
1: Are you having fun when you're working?
0: Sometimes, Sometimes not, it's like a job, you know? And some jobs, like you have good days and bad days and you have complaints about the job and sometimes there's parts that you like. Um, so yeah, sometimes I have fun. When I first started, I had a whole lot of fun. I, I was extremely creative uh, because it was like a whole brand new world. So I did like uh, burlesque shows, like I developed like a or I did, you know, s- goofy photo sets where I was abducted by gnomes or just a whole bunch of random stuff. Uh, that was really fun. I really liked it.
1: One of the things that I'm struck by is the difference between what you do and say what, you know, free porn, which is around everywhere. The, the biggest difference, as far as I can tell, is that people can interact with you. Whereas mm-hmm. when it's just a video, they are a passive observer kind of from afar. But there's something to, to at least it seems to me, when people are paying they want that interaction is that right am i reading what goes on with Only no fans? that's
0: absolutely correct right i and mean
1: so what do they want out of that interaction
0: and like the approval of a woman is very common so like, like uh, there's a lot of things it's like a nuanced sort of fall of motivations that drives men towards uh, only fans are caring or like this intimacy sort of thing. And a lot of it's sex, so you know, you have urges. Um, but like the reason that it's only fans and not like typical porn is because like there is this feeling that somebody sees you, like an attractive woman sees you and says like, yes, that is what I want, sexually speaking. And I think that's like deeply important for the psychology of, of you know, everybody, but like men more so than women. Um and so, yeah, it, it feels like that fulfills some sort of need for them to be like really accepted by the opposite gender.
1: Can you see the people that are contributing money to you?
0: No, not on OnlyFans. It, it depends. Sometimes it's possible, but typically not.
1: And so what have you learned about, I I think it's so interesting because I'm a man that has been around many, many men and like, I have very deep discussions, I would say, venturing into areas that would be normally taboo with a lot of people, but you have a very different view, right? You've seen men being vulnerable, uh, in a way that, that I never will. What have you learned about men, um, that, that somebody that hasn't seen this much intimacy wouldn't, wouldn't know?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, They're really humanizing. I think a lot of people who view this sort of thing from the outside view it like with disgust. Like men are pigs and women are victims sometimes, or women are exploiting men. And and this is true to some degree. Like often there is exploitation that goes on. Like it's two people using each other to you know get their needs met. You know one is financial and one is sexual. Um, So I'm not going to deny that, but but like I think, people don't understand like the degree of of loneliness that men have, and like it's just like a drive to be accepted, like a drive to be loved in this particular way. Because a lot of men can find acceptance like through other men or friends or something. But it's it's such an important need. I think it's very similar to like women's needs to be attractive. Like people are always like you know your beauty standards or whatever, and this is sort of. like we have the the feeling of value when we're desired by other people and and men have exactly the same thing it's really desperately looking to be desired and this feels like human and sad sometimes and good sometimes for me and I, i i wish that there was more of this compassion for that side of men that was present in the discourse around sex work and this is to some degree i find that what i do to be very fulfilling not always. <laughs> sometimes they're like, "Hey, baby, like show me a picture of your asshole." And that's not—it's not super fulfilling. But I mean, I've been—I used to do like in-person sex work as well. And I remember I used to hold men as they cried sometimes, you know, because that's just what they needed, and like skin-to-skin contact. It was like we would get naked and it wasn't sexual. And I would just hold him, and it was like being a baby. And it, I, I just—I love that. Like, and I wish I could do that for so many other people.
1: A couple of weeks ago I had somebody on and we were talking about this, uh, theory called bare branches theory in international relations. And what it is, is uh, a fact of, of human nature, which is 50% of men will not be sexually uh, successful. Like they won't have children. And we forget in our society that there are just huge swaths of men that, like you said, they're never touched. They never have uh, intimate engagement. They don't have a woman looking at them saying, I see you. In fact, when you get to a certain level in the hierarchy status, when you're down so low, you don't even want women to look at you, right? You have a hard time making that eye contact. And a friend of mine pointed out something that I had not thought of, which is, When the atomic bomb happened, so the the way that it used to be that a country would have to deal with their bare branches, because eventually you get so many unmarried men that have no hope of getting up in the hierarchy that they end up joining gangs, getting involved in banditry, going and causing civil insurrection. So this has happened in places like China, in the Middle East, all over the world, really. But with the invention of the atomic bomb, we no longer go to war where masses of men that are unattached are killed. And so now we have this proliferation of bare branches, and something has to to fill this in in some way. And I have to wonder if the work that you're in or the or the need that you're filling is actually filling a gap created by the atomic bomb in a weird way.
0: Yeah, I, w- I would be curious about that. I mean, to some degree, like prostitution has been around it's very old before the atomic bomb. Uh, so obviously, there's been some sort of excess uh, but I wonder to what degree it's been like emphasized, uh, emphasis, emphasis, emphasis by stuff like this. And it, it reminds me of war in general, right? Like, like men used to have like a very important and valuable function, which is if you go to war. And this was sort of like more ingrained in sort of our atmospheric, like, oh, I know Joe, like 10 years ago died in the war. Like that was sort of just the way that people operated. And, and now it's not very clear what men are like good for, you know, in uh, this evolutionary way. Um, so like men have stopped playing this role because we don't need that role anymore. But women are still playing a role that we need, which is reproduction. So I think that there's just asymmetry. I think this is likely why we're seeing um, certain strains of feminism going really big uh, because like what are men What are men doing, you know, is the question. And you know, this sucks. it really sucks for men to like not have a clear reason why society should value them. And I agree that like the, the overabundance, like it, this, is, this is not, it sucks.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, that uh, we're entering a phase where we will have to have some sort of giant phase change because the role of the burly man that locks in his feelings, but goes and gets the work done because his body was actually a tool. We seem to have transcended and yet you, you can't, you still have all those people out there. You still have the genetic selection where you've got big guys that have this, the urges and the testosterone and the, energy and yet there's no place for them in a cosmopolitan world where you're valued for your white collar work or for the creativity that you have and so i don't know how our society will deal with this because just like you were saying feminism is evolving very quickly because women have have, uh, filled a different role and there's not this place for men and they're kind of in this weird um uh amorphous state where 50 percent of them are going to be just blocked out of it
0: right and and there's like a a subtle distinction i want to make here like very often the response to this is sort of um, an anger at you know the progression of society like oh we're going down a bad path and you know we need to bring it back to the old values we need to make men men again um and i i sympathize with this urge i don't think that this is the way to go um like when evolution moves like say you get like a strong environmental change and then like a population is going to go through like a lot of die off and a lot of like uh, struggles to to be alive until they like modify to fit the environment and i think this is what we're going through we have a strong environment shift and the answer is not to undo the environment it's impossible there's too many incentives like wrapped up. We can't undo the internet and you know, not having war. So yeah, it's gonna it's really shitty that we're now having to like these growing pains of a population like trying to figure out how to modify themselves and leaving a whole lot of people behind. And I think it's like a fine line to walk between like accepting that and moving forward and like figuring out how to integrate and also maintaining compassion for like the damage that this is doing to people. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's a wrong mo- motion that we're making.
1: Well, I mean, this—I mean, it also reflects to to women as well. Like in in your line of work with sex work, like that has always been a part of our society. Prostitution—it's all—it's certainly in the Bible. It's in all different um, uh, ancient books. Uh, but there's an interesting thing about the evolution towards women being more liberated in this way, or being able to take control of their sexuality. In that the are you familiar with the concept of the uroboros right the the snake that's eating its own tail yeah it's, it's the 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 symbol i actually of,
0: never heard it said out loud before
1: i think that's how you pronounce uroboros,
0: it I, uroboros.
1: yeah uroboros and it's it's uh so i like it's an interesting thing because when I found out that I was having a daughter, I had a vision that would be as close to the angel singing and the image of the Uroboros there. Hmm. And that being this uh, this very um, sacred role that women play for being able to create a universe. I mean, you are able to, with your body, potentially able to create another human being. It's crazy. Do you think sex work in some way demeans your uh, role as you're a hieroboros or is that one that you can choose not to fulfill?
0: Um,
1: that's a really demean, heavy question.
0: Yeah, I mean the like the word demeans has a lot packed into it and like according to some traditions like that is it is demeaning. Like a lot of people perceive what I do as demeaning myself. Um, and in that, in, in that framework, that, that is true. Like, I understand how that would make sense given like the way that you view the world. Um, I don't think this is true in the way that I view the world. Like for one, I could still reproduce. Um, and, and two, it, like it's, it's still fulfilling an important societal function. Like I, I, the, the word me like doesn't feel like it really resonates with the sort of things that I've experienced in sex work. It might for other people, but like, I just don't really operate according to that way of viewing the world.
1: That's, that's totally fair. Like the, the, when I use the word demeaning, that's probably, yeah, totally unfair. I guess my point about it is do you feel as though the Euroboros is the role that all women must fulfill? And it, and it doesn't sound like it does. So
0: to clarify by Euroboros, do you mean reproduction?
1: I don't know actually like, I think that this symbol, it means more than just reproduction, but I, I don't know. Well,
0: then I'm not sure I understand fully what you mean.
1: Could you could you explain? Uh, so you've had some very interesting writing about the differences between men and women and, the, and we were just talking about like the gender roles. Do you think there is something intrinsic to being a woman that by doing sex work, it's uh it takes you out of the league of the other women that you see around you that are not in sex work
0: <laughs> out of the league I mean yeah it feels like I'm doing a big different thing like a different strategy or whatever like a lot of women like uh, try to maintain resources by marriage you know and like like hooking a man in like a singular like uh a centralized, uh, source generator or something. <laughs> and I'm, I'm very decentralized. I'm like the crypto of woman. Like, it's just like a little bit from a lot. <laughs>
1: wow. Okay. That's super interesting. So, um, I find your, the way that you answer questions to be very interesting because you've, you're so full of energy and then you just your answer is done so it's very like i'm i'm like okay i've got to like ask another question and uh and, and i don't I, I don't necessarily like i have lots of questions for you the the ones that strike me as interesting are when you said you did in-person sex work and like how would you compare the two between being on camera and being in person with people
0: um well, first off i i enjoy like the 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 perception of my like answer endingness. Um, it feels like good, good, good to have myself described like that. Um, but with in-person sex work, it, I, I like OnlyFans better than in-person because I'm like really lazy and I like having my own flexibility, you know, not having like a schedule. Um, but in regards to like fulfillment and if I had to argue something that's like quote-unquote good for society, I would say in-person sex work um, was better in that way because like, it feels like much more meaningful and more one-on-one. It's like much closer to therapy, I would say, and this other thing is more like being a professional naked influencer or something, uh, which feels like a little bit more disembodied to some degree.
1: Do people when they're being so intimate share with you the details of their life as to why they're connecting with you as opposed to interacting with the world? They're <laughs> yeah. interacting with the world. I like I I don't know how to say that. Do you understand what I mean? Instead, yeah, like yeah, like why it's why transactional, are they right? Friend. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, lots of reasons. Um, a big, a big chunk of the demographics are married men who don't want to end their marriages or their lives. Like the stereotype would be like, man, he's sixty-five. He's been married for forty years. His wife has stopped having sex with him ten years ago. Um, he has like three kids and a house and retirement funds, and he's just and he's like desperate to have sexual intimacy with someone, but he doesn't want to cheat with someone at work because that would very confusing. It would be dirty, you know. Maybe she would get pregnant and so it was like okay I'm gonna see a sex worker who's removed I get to see her have like satisfaction and come back and it's like not gonna damage or threaten or anything and I still get my needs fulfilled that's like like the stereotype of, of a lot of these men um some of them are younger some of them have difficulty getting women in the first place um some of them I mean you know pandemic makes it a little bit harder so that's a bonus for my end um yeah yeah it's just people sometimes people it's a they're normal they have normal lives they have girlfriends some of them are cheating on like active girlfriends um by watching only fans or something um and something similar to like a pornographic addiction so that would be closer to like i get to have an interactive porn thing like i get to request very specific sort of movements so, yeah it's, it's a bunch of different incentives
1: and Has that ever come back? Has their own personal lives ever come back to uh, bite you? Or or did they ever drag you into the problems that they're not facing
0: by visiting you? So far, no. Um, I'm pretty good at keeping boundaries. Uh, I I tend to be like more of like a distant kind of, believe it or not, despite what I'm saying, I'm a little bit more distant than most people. I have occasionally seen clients I've seen like, like online in my sphere's of interaction and i'm like i'm not sure if i should avoid you or not it's people you wouldn't guess it's just normal people it's just everyone like i'm sure you've seen somebody who's seen a sex worker it's very likely
1: oh i have no no doubt about that so i worked in the in the shipping world right so i was a deckhand and when you Mm. get around with guys that have been at sea for three months or they're (laughs) they're going out for you know basically a year they aren't going to go home there's a whole bunch of that and it in particular, sense. cause you're, you're coming into ports where you sound like you could build a relationship or something like that. So that, that was, uh, yeah, a component of, of a world that I lived in. And it was one of those things where you looked at the people that were doing it and you think, well, that would never be me. I would never make those decisions. But mm-hmm. if you got yourself into a life position where you were isolated from so many other people, now that I'm an adult and I, I know the value of intimacy, I can completely understand how they, how they got on that path.
0: Yeah, makes
1: sense. Cool. So what would you say is the comparison choice for uh, men m- making? So uh, I I'm, I run a network and in the network, I, I posted that I was going to do this interview and the, a conversation got started around the idea of what is the comparable decision for men to make? Where it's I'm making a decision about my career and there's no going back from this. Um mm. And, uh, one of the thoughts that got brought up was, um, like MMA fighting, right. Where you're going in and you're exposing yourself to being hit or hurt or any of those things. Is that a fair comparison? Is that one you would make?
0: That's an interesting comparison. I would not have thought that. I mean, maybe that's true. Um, it's, there's something like maybe a little bit more absolute about pornography in the sense that like, if you do porn, it's sort of. Like assuming that it's known, like your your image is out there, that is irreversible. Whereas it's possible to go through an MMA fight without recurring damage. Um, but that is interesting. I, it's, it is also different in the fact that like the pornography problem is socially induced. So it's like you get like everybody doesn't like you if you've done the thing. Whereas there's not sort of a social stigma against MMA. Um, when you asked for a, an analogy, I started thinking like what are things that stigma has for men. Drug dealing, maybe gambling to some degree. I feel Um, like
1: there's far less shame associated with those, right? There's a lot more of like, eh, I probably shouldn't do it. Probably not a great guy, but I don't know. Yeah.
0: As one, I remember this is probably different in different circles, but I remember hearing the conversation recently where uh, some, like somebody had had gay sex and they were bisexual and that caused them to be stigmatized from having like straight relationships.
1: Oh, I, I would believe that hundred yeah. percent. In fact, I can remember being in college and and talking with with girls about would you, does a a man that has sex with another man one time is he gay or not? And I remember women saying, no, he's not gay, but he's not. I'm, I'm like I'm not into it anymore. And I and all of the men said yeah. one time, then you are, you are categorically gay from that point on. Which, like, that always struck me. Like, there's not very many things that you can do where you do it one time and that is what you are considered by other people.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Because yeah, I was thinking, like, what is it shameful for a man to be? It's, like, it's not shameful for a man to be a drug dealer, but it's shameful to be feminine or to be, like, submissive or gay or weak, you know, like, non-masculine in some, so, so like gay sex is like one example of the way some people think about it. Um, for the record, I, um, I've dated people who have had gay sex. I just want to put it out there that there's women who will still be totally fine with it. If that's what you like.
1: Yeah. I mean, my sense is that, uh, you're gay. If you, if you want to be gay. gay, like if, yeah, not, <laughs> not even want if you're gay, right? Like if, if that's uh, like, I think human sexuality is one of those things where, We'd like to believe that it is very ordinary and that it's very clear lines are drawn. But I don't think that's the way human psychology works.
0: Right. And it's another problem with like the word versus like the concept. I, I find often that like people are like, am I gay? Is this not like does this count as fitting under this label? And if you need to communicate with other people, like labels are nice. But like ultimately the labels are do not change what reality is. Like it it doesn't matter what you call it. If you have like, sometimes you feel a little bit drawn to men, but mostly you're drawn to women, uh, except when these certain circumstances are met, then that thing is the truth. It doesn't matter the way that you describe it. Like it does not kind of change the thing that you experience. so it's like, in some sense, it's totally irrelevant. Like if we call it gay or not, like who the fuck cares?
1: Do you, are most of your friends as I, I'm at, have you ever taken the big five personality test? Yes. And so are you high on the openness scale?
0: Yeah,
1: 99%. 99%. That's, and are most of the people around you that high on the openness scale?
0: Pretty high. Yeah. I don't know if that high, but we're all very high on the openness scale. You really like big five, huh?
1: Oh, I'm, I'm super into that one. That one explained a lot about me to the extent yeah? that when I took the test, and I got the answers back. I remember like I printed it out and I was reading it. And then all of a sudden I was like, I don't want anybody to see this. I'm like clutching it close to me. And, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, really the only person that I shared it with for the first, I don't know, maybe three or four months I had it was my wife. And then we were like, what do you think? You look at this one and I'll look at yours and we'll see. And so I probably put too much stock in it, but it answered things about who i am and how i think about things in a way that i hadn't uh, really understood like i'm a very like pleasant outgoing happy person but i am a one on the agreeable scale so like i if i see a problem i can't this like everything in my body yeah. tells me you know stop and let's resolve this problem
0: cool <laughs> that's really nice
1: well i don't think it's cool if you don't like arguing. like i'm the type of person that's that true. like i i you know i don't mind the conflict it's like something enjoyable for me but so if it's, you're so you're, so you're, like,
0: your internet experience like pretty spicy what do you mean like are you like full like i because i identify with this like i feel like i'm like drawn towards the um the this and then i want to like stick my hand into the the place where people are fighting
1: Yeah. I mean, I, so, you know, if we think about it in terms of like the, the yin and the yang, right, where the yin is order and the yang is chaos, I love exploring chaos to the extent that uh, it's, uh, it's dangerous for me. Like I, I have to really think about like, is this an experience I want? Because once I'm drawn into an experience, I will run around in it and and adulthood was really about me figuring out what doors not to even open
0: mm. that's a that's a great it makes me want to watch like a movie about your life or something just with that with as a
1: pitch <laughs> so What do you like to talk about? I watched a lot of your interviews and I feel like one of the things that would be difficult about your life is that you are so novel because of sex work that that ends up being the impetus behind why people interview you. But yet if you, because if you were just a writer, I probably would have been willing to interview you, but I wouldn't have been like, I got to pay full attention to this. So what is it like to have that be a thing that people are always like, Hey, can I talk with you about this?
0: Yeah, so I don't mind. There's like some need in me to feel like valued in conversations because I kind of feel unaware of how to become valuable in a conversation otherwise. So having sex work um, makes me sometimes feel a little bit dehumanized in regards to like how people are interested in it, but it's sort of worth it for me because I feel Like I have a role to play, Um, like I can, oh, I can provide something interesting for people to talk about. Uh, So I don't mind it. Like I'm always like coming on interviews to to talk about it specifically. You know, I'm doing this voluntarily. Um, And it feels a little bit like I accidentally stumbled into an expert role. Like uh, OnlyFans recently got very popular and I happen to have the career trajectory such that I am in the correct place to talk well about OnlyFans and also am very successful at it. Um, So it feels sort of like the phenomenon where somebody happens to be in the right place at the right time and suddenly everybody asks them all the questions. Uh, So that's fine. And I feel like it's going to dry up at some point and like the interest is going to turn to something else. Um, I get asked a lot about like the psychedelics enlightenment thing. It's like was the last phase uh, before this one. Uh, So I don't mind.
1: Your directness strikes me as somebody that's similar to um, I don't know if you follow Yosha Bach Plins on Twitter. But I know he is... him. So, uh, Yosha and I talk every now and then. He's been on the podcast, and uh, I am struck by his level of clarity in the way that he says things. Like, it's much like yours, unadorned. And th- this may be an odd question, but do you think that you have uh, autistic like tendencies with the <laughs> way that you?
0: Yeah, I'm I have Asperger's. Do you? Um, most likely. So, I have not been officially diagnosed, but um, it's very likely that i
1: do that's what i thought i i um you remind me very much of engineers that i know that are high in the openness scale that uh they're they're capable of building things and and focusing very deeply but the clarity like when you ask them a question it's impossible for them to adorn the answer they they don't they don't know how and so therefore their direct answer comes off as almost humorous to people because it's so direct and i find that your answers to be that that way no i, I love it like all of my friends are are engineering Autistic, open people yeah, okay. so
0: yeah it's my favorite way to be i feel like i don't really understand how to operate otherwise um i was doing interviews for a while I was interviewing people who claim to be enlightened um and it was a shock to me to like i would ask a question i would ask a very specific question it's like do you experience x and then they would talk for like 30 minutes about everything else. And I'm like, that's, I'm, I, I just want to know the answer. And then I would just like wait and I'd be like, but do you experience X though? It's like, I don't know. I don't really understand. People seem to have like a different way of approaching like different goals in conversations. Um, I'm trying to learn how to be better though, because like in interviews, I realized that likely people would like me to start talking more, um, like about things like unprompted. Uh, so I've been trying to do that sort of like what I'm doing right now
1: how are you at reading uh, facial cues are you good at being able to tell the emotional state of other people
0: i think so um yeah so i i i am very likely autistic and then there's also some things which seem to not fit for me like I, I seem to be pretty in touch emotionally um i tend to be less affected by it than others as in like i f- think i feel like more okay if other people are angry Uh, But I I haven't noticed that I seem to be particularly unaware of other people's faces yet.
1: No, I think it strikes me the same way with Yosha. He is very capable of understanding the deep emotional lives of people, but it's somehow like you described his, he's got two selves, one that he's uh, experiencing and one that he's able to uh, observe the experience with. And for me, I don't have that. Like I, I often make the example of, um, uh, if I were to ask you about a room that maybe you and I have both in or been in before or a building that we've both been in before, and I asked you to draw it, how would you go about drawing a room so that you and I would both know it? What, 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 where, where would your mind go?
0: I would visualize it. In from memory. which
1: place from, from um, in the experience or above the experience?
0: I think standing in a corner of the room
1: oh interesting okay i didn't expect you to say that so tell me more if you were going to draw it you would then draw the walls as though you see them yeah interesting
0: is this do you not have this
1: no i am the same way so but a lot of the people that i spend time with and i think a lot of people that are in that autistic scale or in that genre um a lot of times they think about the world from above like an architecture Mm. schematic and so they're able to draw it from above and then can transpose themselves inside of it and kind of see it mine experience of it is i can't draw it from above i can only draw it from the experience but i can i can bring on with it like extreme shades of color i could tell you no that color is off that's not quite right i could tell you if the smells were wrong i could tell you if the sounds were correct but I can't do it from above. So like I have an experiential mind as opposed to maybe an analytical mind.
0: That doesn't seem true based on talking to you. Hmm. And there's something you said earlier in the thing. You, I forgot what it was. Okay, I'll come back to it. But I had a, I had an example of something you've said, but I'll remember it later.
1: So the reason I asked, I actually asked that question to a lot of people because I think that it uh, brings in a layer of how people's minds work. And I think... When you start to understand how does this person perceive or build mental models, it's very interesting to me. And I think there's probably more than two just above or inside of, but those are the two that I'm the most aware of.
0: I'm curious. So so when I think about communicating it to somebody else, I think about drawing it there. But I am notoriously obsessed with floor plans. I have tweeted about my love of floor plans before. I used to obsessively draw floor plans when I was a kid I have spent so many t- like hours like, making like, like hypothetical floor plans and trying to arrange it. I love thinking about things from the top. And so I'm, I'm like, really interested in this because like, it felt to me like there was a difference in goal. Like, if I want to communicate to you like, what the room was like, then it seems like just like, a visual from the inside seems like the best way to do that. But if I want anything else, like, like where in the house was it, then a the floor plan seems much better
1: yeah the game itself is much better in person because what i would do is i would hand you a piece of paper and i would say just just draw I the see. room that we're in and you watch people and i like, see they they it's it's just like being left-handed or goofy foot or you know like le- left eye or right eye dominant because like they don't even think that there is another way to draw this I they see. just do it the way that they they do it
0: that's a really cool idea have you tried putting it in a twitter poll
1: uh, no, uh uh-uh, no, we should work on that and try and figure out the right wording, because it's hard yeah. enough to explain it just in in words. So visualizing things actually makes me think of something I wanted to ask you about. So I don't know, have you used a virtual reality headset very much?
0: Yes, I have one of those.
1: Do you? So um, how often do you use it? What do you use it for?
0: Uh, so I use it every day for exercise. I do audio trip with weights on my arms, um, but occasionally I use it for other things.
1: Have you used it for sex work?
0: No, I have not.
1: So there is something really interesting about uh, the VR headset. Like, I, you know, there, you can't live in the internet and not see naked photos. And if you're a man, like you're going to see them, you know, f- somewhat mm-hmm. frequently. But when I had the first experience of putting on that headset and watching a YouTube video where there was a singer right in front of me and the it was high fidelity imagery and it, it was as though I could touch her. To me, that was one of those doors that I slammed shut and locked because I was like, to me, if you go use the VR headset for pornography, your brain cannot distinguish that you did not actually have sex with that person. And to me, that seemed like a very, uh, a, a very dangerous bridge to cross.
0: Wait, so people go into IRL sex stuff all the time, like kink clubs, you can go to kink clubs and watch people have sex. Do you feel similarly like afraid of that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, um, like it would be something that I would avoid, right. It would be something that like, I would say, Hey, my marriage, this is just not an area that I'm going to go towards.
0: I see. Okay. So for you, it feels like closer to cheating than, or like like yeah. a threat to your marriage. than other thing. Okay. Well,
1: and not even, even so much a threat as much as it is like, you know, a commitment or, or like a, you know, my wife and I are very open with one another. So for me to like have to hold something that I wouldn't want to tell her is something mm. that I really, that's like my barometer, right? Like wh- where is the line of something that I wouldn't want my wife to know that I'm doing, then I should probably back the hell out of that. Okay. But in any case, the, the larger point was, uh, the VR, I think is going to, to radically alter the way that people experience pornography.
0: Yeah, I've I've been hearing that for a while now. I think like five or six years ago, there was like a big push for VR. Uh, I think you're right. It might this might be like a bigger thing because like the Oculus is so easily accessible. Like I never used VR until I think I bought it like a month ago or something. Like I think finally it's starting to hit everybody's households, and, and you're right. This might be the time where we see changes. Uh, I think I'm like a little bit less. I, I view it like a less exciting thing than you maybe. Uh, but maybe it's also because I feel like going to kink clubs and watching people have sex to be like, well, that's exciting. <laughs> so,
1: and when you say that you go to an experience like that, are you experiencing it like we talked about before with the floor plans versus the experience? Like what is it about the, that experience that would be something you'd be drawn towards doing?
0: Which experience?
1: Going to a, to like a kink club, for example.
0: I was just like, like hanging out with friends and, uh sometimes there's dancing at kink clubs I, I haven't like really recently i used to when i was younger the novelty it's like ooh, like lots of people having sex in front of each other uh yeah i find out like orgies it's it's kind of, it's kind of fun
1: and are there any doors that you've passed through that you would say hey i've been down that door and i don't recommend it
0: no I, it would it would be conditional on the person like, I, like, this is basically universal to all experiences. Like, all experiences, like including, like, quite excruciating ones, I would recommend to them, depending on the person, what their needs are. Uh, for some people, doing, like more, like, more extreme stuff than I have would be awesome for them. Like, I know someone, actually, who is way more extreme stuff in every conceivable way than me, and that's exactly what she wants. Like, she loves it. This, this is her life, and I could never. Uh, so, yeah, it just depends on who you are, like, what you feel like. Um, So whenever somebody asks me for advice, like what they should do, I first check, like, who are you? What are your needs? Like, what are you already comfortable with? Like, what are your incentives? And then I give advice based on that.
1: And as you think about your experience, if you were around the Christian faith, particularly people that were, you know, very devout or very much about these are the rules, and this is how you uh, get yourself to heaven. Does that do the do the 800 verses that you have in your mind do they play in the back of your mind as you're having these experiences saying I was told not to do this (laughs)
0: Uh, like a little bit but um I don't feel shame anymore at all um because it feels like so clearly fine to me I think like if I were trying to make myself do something I felt a little bit uncomfortable with then I might be like oh they said that for a reason um but it seems like so clearly good that it's just I can't even oh thank not food um, it's it, so it just, it's not uh but sometimes I feel like a little bit ironically like oh it's so funny that like if only these people could see me now as so I'm like in the middle of like a heaving mass of naked bodies like that would be funny
1: so when you when people come to you and they ask for this advice um are Do you think that this is a path that many people should go down? Like, I, I, I don't really know how to ask the question other than maybe the, maybe the blunt way, which is if you had a daughter, would you want her to go into the line of work that you've gone into?
0: I mean, it depends. I went into the line of work. I would like my children to not, I'm not sure if I say that I was going to say not need to work at all. don't know if that's true. Um, I would like to have my children in a place where they never had to try to do something that they were uncomfortable with. It's like I, I did this because like I didn't have anywhere else to go, in in like a in a sense. And I would prefer my child not have to make a decision out of that. I think I would be okay with it given it felt I felt really convinced that this is good for her, um, as in this is like aligned with the type of personality she has and like the best option for her out of the other options. I don't think I have like a kind of a disgust reaction towards thinking that again, I'm not a mother. So it's possible once I have kids, the feelings will change.
1: You mentioned like not feeling shame. Um, this is an interesting thing, right? Like I think a lot about the difference between embarrassment and shame, right? And embarrassment Mm -hmm. being, I was walking with a tray of food and I tripped and I spilled it everywhere and I get up and my face is red and people clap and I maybe take a bow to like signal (laughs) this is a behavior that is different than me. So you're separating mm. yourself, right? And shame being that thing that you do it. And as you experience it, there's no like standing up to take a fake bow. There's no, you just want to hide your head and, and cover your eyes and get away from people. You want to crawl into a hole. I've always thought of, of shame as a very important uh, role in society to, to maintain the, the layers of culture not changing too quickly. But you just said something very interesting that you don't feel shame. So what do you think about shame and its role in controlling culture?
0: Um, so I'm going to use a small analogy for this. I, I'm not religious. Um, if, if somebody listening is religious, let's imagine a religion that you don't agree with, uh, like Islam or something. <laughs> uh, Islam was is like very useful for a lot of their culture. Like it it gave them like certain behavioral norms that made them more successful in the way that they operated. And this was like good for that. And they had to like believe it only really worked if they like believed in, you know, all of the the rules and whatever. Um, But it's not like really true. So something can be like useful in a context, but also not necessarily true or useful in other contexts. And I think the same is very true about shame. I think that shame is, you're right, it is useful for society in a similar way that like ancient religions were useful for their society. I'm not going to say like, oh, you sh- shouldn't feel shame willy-nilly because like maybe that's like what you need for that that context. Um, but again, I don't think this is an absolute thing. I think that this is sort of like uh, an invented, I'm gonna, I don't really support that word, but like a constructed emotion that's designed to change your behavior to fit with the whole. And I don't think that it's like, Tied into anything like really meaningful or true, like ultimately, what what is there to be shamed about? Like you're just doing what makes sense for you in the moment, given your personality and incentives and the things you've experienced. Like really, what else were you going to do? And so, if in the, from this perspective, it doesn't make sense to feel shame, and I feel no shame. That seems to be true. I'm just checking, to see if there's any shame in there.
1: Th- that's interesting. Like so. Um... In the Jordan Petersonian kind of way of thinking, he describes sin, not as like a defiance of God, but a missing of the mark, right? Like where, where it's actually an archery term describing that uh, when you sin, you are missing where you were supposed to be headed. Do you think with the, with not having shame, do you still have a true sense of where you are supposed to be or what you, you should be doing?
0: So, so those are interesting words, like supposed to and should. Like there's a lot in those words that sort of indicates that there's some sort of standard, like could be like God and morality, you know, has like of the thing. And then you're supposed to like in contrast to that, um, or maybe like supposed to, in fact, of like I designed a plan for my life and am I adhering to that? But like my point is that those words assume like some sort of external framework that I either am matching or I'm not. Um, and I don't have that. Uh, So, like, those words don't really make sense because there's nothing for me to supposed to do, really. I I enjoy, like, I have goals that I like and I have those goals because, like, I check inside myself and I feel good when I move towards them. Um, But I don't think I feel like I'm supposed to do anything or that I should do anything.
1: And do you think, uh, well, what do you think if, do you think culture is moving more in the direction that you're already at, or is that you're just a rare person that stands outside on the periphery and the world is going to go where it's going to go?
0: I'm not sure. So I know that like a lot of people perceive the world as doing something similar to what I'm doing or like moving in that direction. And I think that this is actually kind of untrue or misleading Um, I think that a lot of people are using some sort of similar ideas to me, like, Oh, you shouldn't have to do it. There is no truth, whatever. um, As a way to like sort of force in their idea of truth. Um, I know this is like a little bit vague. No, this is
1: great. Keep going. This is great.
0: (laughs) Um, Yeah. I I just, sometimes I hear like people talk about this and I, and I think that it's sort of like they're, um, they're like sort of hiding actually like full structures and, other types of shame inside of uh saying that there should not be shame, and so I, I don't think I identify with that. And I think if that is where the world is going, if I'm correct about that, then that's just another version, slightly more hidden, of like like the religious styles of the past. Um, and I think I would be unusual in that regard.
1: Wow. Okay. So that that actually strikes in me the concept of. Uh... So my belief is, I think the, the amount of chaos that has happened in the world in the last, certainly the last nine months, probably the last 20 years, that I think that religion is going to come back in a big way. And um, I, I don't think that's projection because I'm, I'm not a, a particularly devout person. I'm, I'm definitely open to the idea of the church because I think the fact that it's so Lindy means that it had some values there or some wisdom that is worth deeply trying to understand before I write it off like the way that I did in college. But I get this sense that people will move more towards that um, structured center, even if it forces them to do things or agree with things that they don't like, because it will help make sense of a world that has become too chaotic for multiple generations to be in uncertainty in a way that we've not been in the past.
0: Yeah. And this might also be true. Like the world is very big and there's lots of different movements that are doing different things with different incentives. Um, and it's possible that like, that is exactly what's going to happen with some people. I don't know to what degree it makes sense to describe that as like an overall motion of culture. Like maybe it does. I I have also some friends who are going trad and I'm like, why, why are you becoming religious? Another thing that I, I don't what does that mean
1: that, going trad you're the second second guest to use the word but i think there are a lot trad. of my viewers that have no idea what it means to be trad
0: um i i'm not going to do it justice but i can try i when I, there's a lot of people in my mentions who are like trad and they those are like value um women giving birth and men being the provider like sort of a traditional way of being Um, I think they kind of do a little bit more like meta sort of like we're like intentionally doing this as opposed to it being put onto us by our culture.
1: Wow. I didn't even know that. Okay.
0: Yeah, I I could be, I could be.
1: That's the thing that I think is growing that. And I didn't, I didn't realize that's what trad meant. I, I knew it meant traditional values, but I didn't think about it at the meta level. And I think that the reason that that is so important is because that, that, uh, that choice component, right? It wasn't like you were just raised in the church and you're just perpetuating the beliefs that were handed to mm-hmm. you. It was like you left and you decided to come back, and then when you came back, you came back on your own terms, and so it means something different.
0: Yeah, I I like that idea. The thing that I don't like about it is that a lot of trads, at least the ones I've encountered, might not be all of them, tend to really hate me and my sex work. Um, oh yeah, so, that's
1: big big. Yeah, part that's of that the problem. Right? Don't I, I feel like- yeah.
0: I, I, I'm very, I like movements regardless of what they are, as long as they feel sort of like inclusive of differences um, or sort of like, this is what I want and it's okay if you do something else. Um, but like movements that feel reliant on other people who are not like accepting your world to you, needs to accept your world to uh, then I'm like less a fan of it. So I like the idea of Chad as long as you like, you're okay with me doing my thing over here.
1: Yeah. And I think that that like, that that was in a point that I wanted to talk about, which was the, the just for the in the first for the first time maybe ever, uh, I've started seeing people push back on uh, sex work as work, right? And so from the moment I was in college, where even though it was a Catholic university, they were saying we need to get rights to people that are in prostitution. It needs to be legalized. It should be safer. It should be done in these more institutionalized ways. And so from that run for the next 20 years, I never heard anybody say anything other than that, unless they were some kind of crotchety old religious person. And now I'm watching a whole new front move in where there's people saying we shouldn't normalize this. And in fact, we should stigmatize it. And I I actually wondered as we were talking like or before we, we started talking like, Is there a, is there a downside to showing the normalness of a person that lives such a, such a different life? And I, you know, I, I ultimately came to the conclusion that I was deeply curious about who you were, but I think there are a lot of people that want to push you out now.
0: Yeah, that seems true. I think I suspect that a lot of the anti-sex work stuff was present and we're only seeing it more because of the proliferation of OnlyFans is my guess. Um, like, like if someone listening didn't know OnlyFans like has a massive up jump in visibility, um,
1: talk about what it is from the beginning as though somebody doesn't know what it is.
0: Yeah. OnlyFans is like a site like Patreon where basically you make uh, an account and then people can access what you post to your account for a price, which you can set. And then you have a feed, uh, like kind of like a Facebook page or something, except it's a paid Facebook page that people can access and and they got really really big this year starting in around january february march and it's been all over the news celebrities are joining it and there's been a lot more discourse and so that's why i'm like wondering like maybe that is what is triggering like more visibility of the people who are anti-sex work
1: yeah i think that's probably that's probably true i didn't realize that coronavirus and only fans kind of came together at the at the same time and there was probably a lot well, more loneliness yeah the argument
0: on. is that that coronavirus created the success of only fans i don't know how that's true but some people say that
1: so when you're not uh tripping on acid or doing your profession or writing what else is it makes up who you are and how you spend your time
0: um i'm pretty pretty unproductive i've been into chess lately uh, as has a lot of people i'm on clubhouse so the app i don't know if you know it um, i'm vaguely
1: familiar with it
0: yeah it's an app and there's just a whole lot of things that make me very mad so of course i have to go on there and like be mad every day uh so that's very fun <laughs> and then i hang out with my roommates a lot
1: and you, uh, travel, I was reading that you were, uh, yeah. I, I believe you said you were brawless in Saudi Arabia as, as I remember mm-hmm. the title of the blog, where are you going in the middle East and why of all places, does a person like you go to <laughs> such, such a cloistered place?
0: Well, uh, I was going to South Africa. Um, and so I was, I stopped Saudi Arabia um, briefly on the way there. Uh, yeah, I, I go festival hopping, um, Fell in with some hippies a few years ago, and they just sort of travel around in like this sort of homeless hippie communal sort of deal, uh, which is really great. I like it.
1: Um, just kind of r- wrapping up, one of the questions that I would like to ask people that I think are, are kind of cerebral thinkers is one that's kind of hard, um, but it's called the Peter Thiel Paradox. And so the Peter Thiel paradox is tell me one thing that you believe is true that almost no one, you know, agrees with you on. And the reason this is such an interesting question is because if you say something people already agree with, then, you know, you failed. And then if you say something nobody's agreed with, now you've got to figure your way out of this paradox and be able to explain it in a compelling way.
0: Right. I love that question. It's very similar. I have like the deck, deck of questions, askhold.io. Oh, and I
1: have. The, I meant to ask you about that. We should talk about that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. And my, I think my favorite question in there is, um, what's the most controversial opinion you hold on your peer group, which is, I think, similar in, in heart to that one. Yeah. Awesome question. I like that. Um, it depends on who I'm around, like, and I'm afraid to say some of my most controversial opinions, um, because it takes a lot of, because some of them are, like, activate disgust. So, like, I, I don't have a strong disgust trigger. Or if I do, it doesn't really influence my beliefs. So I think some things are fine that some people find, like, really horrifying. Uh, and I'm like, I'm not sure if I want to just say, um, yeah, like, for example, there's that like, sex thing. It's like, as long as consenting adults, um, you can do whatever you want.
1: I would say your interview has been pretty much a Peter Thiel paradox the whole the whole one. I think I think you can really? ask pretty clearly. I mean, like I think just the the idea of your openness. I think that mm. we're talking about a subject that every single listener will have some experience with, right? They they absolutely have opinions on, and they definitely have some sort of uh, mechanism through which they make the decisions about whether you're a good person or a bad person or a, an exciting person or a person to avoid. So That's I think true. your whole time here has been one, one long Peter Teal <laughs> cool. paradox. So yeah. tell, talk about Ask because I thought that game was fascinating.
0: Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, as, as you know, I'm autistic, which makes it uh, hard for me to operate at parties in a way that other people don't think is weird. And also, I don't think is boring. Uh, So for a while, I would go to parties and be like, why, what am I here? What is the point of this? Um, I need to know like the goal of conversations. So I started asking people questions, like weird questions I could think of. I would just walk up to somebody and be like, hey, like if you had to have sex with a cow, would you rather the cow be dead or alive? Like stuff like that. And then eventually I started writing them down so I could remember them. And eventually I started cutting them on little cards. And then eventually I had a deck of like 300 cards of just questions I was collecting or inventing. And then people started telling me like, if you were selling this i would buy it because these questions are so good um and a lot of the questions came out of free research so i would i do my twitter polls right and so i have 1500 or so twitter polls and so i checked like which ones generated the most discussion which ones like were the most divisive like tend to be 50 50 um, and like ranked them all so i took like the top ones out of there and like, and then I play tested them for a whole lot. I'm just telling you the whole, telling you the whole process of how I did this. And this is great. Yeah, I mean, to know.
1: Because it was a profound list of questions. Like there's mm-hmm. nobody that could, li- because as you're reading the questions, you have to ask yourself each one of them. So just the experience of looking at ask Hole, you you're like, wow, I, I have to grapple with this. Like the one that I thought was really interesting was, uh, talk about it uh, something that your parents did that you don't agree with right? Like that everyone is going to have an opinion on that. And it's going to generate a conversation that's going to bring things out in people. I thought that the particular insight was that every one of the questions that you asked, you almost immediately have an answer. And then you kind of have to be like, wait, is that actually what I think? I don't know.
0: Oh, that's such a great compliment. That's like all I've ever wanted to hear about those cards.
1: Well, I and and the fact that we're talking about you being autistic and that being a function of why you did that, like this makes a lot of sense to me.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's great to help conversations become less shitty.
1: So, what's one of your favorite questions? I mean, you already asked the cow one, but we'll go past that one. I have a lot. I mean, of what's I a- the most
0: controversial opinion you hold upon your peer group? That one's really good. Um, I also like. Given nobody will ask you the question, what is a question you would refuse to answer?
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, for me, uh, I'm very reluctant to answer. I am highly open about my opinions and what I think and who I am, but my wife is the you know yin yang opposite, very very quiet. So I'm I'm always very reluctant to answer any questions about what she mm. thinks about things because she will tell you that I never get it right so I'm, I'm always <laughs> very reluctant on that
0: that's a pretty good one. that's a wholesome one
1: yeah but I'm also pretty good at this game so I could probably come up with wholesome answers like that forever
0: oh <laughs> <Well>, that's cheating <laughs> or not following the spirit or something I should install a rule like don't <laughs> no wholesomeness
1: well, this has been um, a, a really interesting, engaging, fascinating conversation, and you are so open that I, I hope you'll come back on. I'm sure that now that we've done the initial thing, I'll have many, many questions I want to ask you because of your unorthodox take on things.
0: Yeah, we should see what, uh, what the people who watch this, how, how they take it, <laughs> maybe riff off of that.
1: Yeah. And I think that, uh, I think that this will be one that they'll, uh, appreciate, right? Like, uh, it's totally off the beaten path and that's what my, uh, my listeners say that they like the most. So
0: that's, that's really cool. I'm glad.
1: So if people wanted to, uh, find out about ask Cole or follow you on Twitter or anything that you wanted to share, where would they do that?
0: Yeah. Uh, my Twitter is aela girl, a E L L a underscore g-i-r-l if you remove the underscore you're going to get pornography so make sure you put the underscore there um and my website is knowingless.com and yeah you can find everything from from those things
1: well thank you so much for joining me and we'll have you back on again
0: awesome thank you so much (laughs) this is great